Democracy. It's a podcast about media, politics, and the politics of the media. I'm Tom Mills, and I'm joined here, as ever, by my co-host, Dan Hine. Hi, Dan. Hello. How are you doing today? I was trying out a new hello. Yeah, uh, I'm good. Yeah, I'm fine. I went well, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it was really good. I don't know really usual. I don't really going to see another outing, but it's always it's always good to sort of shake things up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's been going on uh, this last week then in the in the world of politics and the media that you'd like to call well, people's attention to? Speaking of shaking things up, um, the main event I think in media politics this week is the publication of an article online uh, called "The Public Ownership of the Public Sphere" by one Tom Mills and one Dan Hind. Um, you and I have published, co-authored our first piece. Um, and it's a contribution to the debate on um, new models of ownership, um, which, uh, which is obviously preoccupying minds in the Labour Party. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's an attempt to, uh, to sort of shift that debate into issues around media ownership and control. Yeah, we're coming at you from two mediums this week, which is quite exciting. If you're not only are you able to listen to us, but you can read us in print. Well, that's right. It's multitasking. It means that you can listen to us while trying to read the article and end up not taking either of those versions of events in, um, yeah. which is uh, which is the modern way. So yeah, you can you can be distracted from us by us, um, mm-hmm. which I think is 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 the very essence of postmodernity. Shall we outline for listeners for those who aren't actually going to read the piece? Basically, what was it about? Well, and where can they are, find it? Are we gonna are we gonna coddle people who can't be bothered to read, Tom? Um, no, you know what? Go and read it. Go like, and read it, it's not that long. If you if you're not gonna do this for us, then we don't we don't want you as listeners. You <laughs> can you can leave right now. Um yeah. it was published at the new the New Socialist, which is a great website. And basically the piece is exploring how Labour might be offering an alternative approach to media policy, which would be based on um, networks of democratic cooperatives. So that, that's the pitch uh, for the article. That's not a summary. You have to go and read it yourself. Now, um, moving on from the uh, major media event of the week, I suppose, to the topic of the show today. Um, Dan and I recorded an interview earlier, which we're going to play you now, uh, with Hetty O'Brien and Wendy Liu. Dan, what do we discuss? Well, it's in a way, it's a follow-up to the conversation that we had um, a couple of weeks ago about... Um, platform capitalism uh, with Nick and Laurie uh, and listeners could check that out in the uh, in the archives um, but it's um, it's a chance really for us to talk with them about the current state of play um, in in the in the tech sector how it relates to traditional ideas of monopoly control Wendy worked in the startup sector um, so she has an interesting take um, and as I say, it's, it's, I think we, we, we start to think in quite, or talk in quite, in quite an expansive way about how we should be trying to tackle these, these issues from the left. So, um, I think it's, a uh, it's a conversation that's, that's badly needed. And, and I certainly haven't heard, um, many people talking along the lines that I think, um, Wendy and Hetty are now talking. So I think it's, a it's, a, it's an important contribution. Great, okay, well, we'll go to the now. Hope you enjoy it. We're very glad to welcome now to the show um, Hetty O'Brien and Wendy Liu. Hetty is a writer who's recently been working on monopolies and antitrust um, law in Washington. 
And Wendy is the economics editor at the New Socialist, um, which is uh, which has been doing a lot of work on the new economy. Thank you so much, guys, for joining us. Um, as we, as I was saying in the intro, we're looking really, I think, to sort of take things f- further from the conversation that we were having with Alex and Laurie a couple of weeks ago. Um, people who haven't heard that would be, um, they may well want to listen to that. It provides a kind of primer on the very basics of platform technology, platform economics, um, and how we're seeing the emergence of a very small number of data-driven platforms um, being dominant in the, the media system. But what I wanted to do with, with you guys is to really start thinking through what an alternative might, might begin to look like. Um, Wendy, can I start with you? I mean, you've written a number of pieces sort of picking at, at the question of um, what, the, what the emerging landscape looks like at the moment and, and how it might be, um, might be changed, particularly in the context of, of government policy. So can I start with a very sort of open question to you, Wendy, about what you think the sort of current state of play is um, on the left as it starts to think about these issues and, and how perhaps, um, and we, we'll, we'll talk more, I think, about of how we'd like to see it develop. So, so Wendy, I'm going to introduce you now. So, so what do things look like as you look at them now? Sure, yeah. Uh, so I think what we're seeing right now is we are seeing the logical combination of technology being developed in a very neoliberal environment where it's just taken for granted that any technological development is appropriated by private corporations and that control over it is um is you know very i guess authoritarian where it's just a few a few people who are the the owners of these um these tech companies who have all the say in what happens and it's just there's an interesting debate with um peter Thiel and david graber that i think illustrates this point very well where peter Thiel, for him the ideal mode of uh, running any sort of tech company startup anything is just there's a it's very top top um, top down uh, founder driven sort of thing where you know just one person at the top gets to control exactly what happens, and I think that is kind of what we're seeing now. And it's um I mean it's a combination of the fact that these are private corporations that have so much control over over all this technology that has really become so important to our daily lives, and the fact that it's just it's not very democratic at all. There's really really little control. Even the people who are working at these corporations. Even the people who are software engineers at these corporations don't really have that much control over what goes on. That's really uh, interesting. I should have said at the outset that you you have you have a background work, working in, in in tech startups. I mean, as a very sort, of, you said very few people have like meaningful control over the development of these commercial platforms. I mean, how many people how many people are we talking? Is it is it is it sort of is it hundreds? Is it thousands? Is it dozens of people? I mean, just how concentrated is control, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it depends on the company, but it's just in general, the the structure is, is still very, very top-down, right? Where, you know, so I, I worked um, at Google briefly as a software engineering intern, and yeah. I was in the San Francisco office uh, working on a team for capacity planning. And I mean, as an intern, obviously, my I didn't really have any decision-making power, but neither, I feel, I feel like, everyone I worked with, it was very much the same, where they were just kind of doing what they were told. And they did have some sort of creativity and autonomy 
with regard to how they did it. Yeah. But, I mean, they could choose which, what design patterns to use. Um, you know, they could choose which, uh, like, what, you know, what specifically they would do with the technology they had. But at the same time, their their scope, it was very much defined from, from above, right? And I, and I really don't know if there are any companies that are, that are substantially different from that kind of model. And, I mean, in the startup world, it's, it's very much the same, if, especially if it's um, it's a small startup with maybe like a, a founder cult. There there are quite a few companies where it's just uh, there there is this cult of this um, founder, the idea of this mythical founder who is just the the person who can do anything, and then they are the person who makes all the decisions. And yeah, it's it's just like a, a really strange ideology within within tech right now. And, I mean, it, it, it contributes to the problem in multiple ways, where you just don't have any democratic control, and you have people working in the industry who maybe don't really like what they're doing, but they still do it because, you know, they're getting paid really well, and they don't really have a choice, and they just, they feel alienated from their work in a lot of ways. And you see a lot of um, people in the industry, uh, I think more and more you're seeing people being disillusioned by that, yeah. and they're, you know, they're starting to think, like, is this really the life that I wanted, where, you know, I'm spending my time building software, which is great, but I'm also doing something that's maybe not really ethical, but they just, yeah, it's it's a, it's not a great situation right now, I would say. And it does seem to run against the grain of how um, that, the kind of working culture seems to be understood in the popular imagination. I mean, there still seems to be this kind of idea that, uh, you know, these um, organizations are um, sort of, you know, they're very creative, horizontalists, and they're sort of uh, yeah, um, somehow embody a much more egalitarian ethos. I mean, do you, do you think that's still something which um, a lot of people associate with the tech sector? Because that does seem to run against the kind of world that you're describing. Yeah, it, it's fascinating because on the surface, it really does seem like this wonderful place where you have all these perks, you have all this freedom and autonomy. Right? I mean, there's, there's a while when Google was considered the best place to work, and I think for, for some, it still is. Because there's just this popular conception of it as being, um, I don't know, just like not not like real work, and I think that's an impression that these companies deliberately cultivate. Right, because if it's not really work, then then spending all your life in the office just seems like it seems like you're having fun, right? Yeah. Um, so it kind of yeah, goes, exactly. goes with the kind of hyper exploitation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You mentioned that there is a sort of there's a discontent, as it were, with the engineering class. You know, people who have been looking at the the model that's on offer in these corporate organisations and starting to lose a degree of um, appetite for it. Are there are there organisations you could point people to where these ideas are being discussed, where, where a kind of like the beginnings perhaps of a an alternative working model is being developed? Definitely, yeah. So there's, um, I mean, the Tech Workers Coalition, I think, is probably the the most well known. It's a group of people who while working in tech at, you know, at various different types of jobs within tech, but I think mostly software engineers mm-hmm. who are, I guess, interested in, in organizing, right, in some sort of um, some sort of union, and I guess just interested in the ethical issues around the industry, and it combines a bunch of different people. They, they do a lot of work with um, the Democratic Socialists of America as well. Right. And in, in, you know, TWC, there's definitely, like, the beginning of something really, really inspiring. And I feel like just among my friends and people I know within the tech industry, lately I've been seeing a lot more people questioning the industry itself. Yeah, that is... That's and, a, it, and it's concerning to see that, but at the same time, I don't know if it's happening fast enough to really make much of a difference. 
Yes, that's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, one of the one of the things that again is is obscured, I think, in the in the in the Silicon Valley's sort of official version of events is the extent to which its own structures were influenced by state coordination and planning. Um, one of one of the one of the tantalising things about the Corbyn project is that it 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 may yet look we may end up with a socialist administration in control of the British state for the first time yeah. since really since the um, the late forties in a way, um, and that would give an opportunity for for these kinds of initiatives to engage with a coordinating power that that has real you know, has real kind of material weight. It has real budgetary power. Um, so let's shift a bit and 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 talk quickly, or, or to sort of broach the subject of of like again. This is a, this is a sort of a big question. It's an open question. But beginning with you, Wendy, and perhaps Hetty, you can chip in. But how would you like to see Labour thinking about tech as a as a sector? And as an opportunity for, uh, you know, an emancipatory program. Mm. Yeah, so I'm actually pretty excited with what uh, the Labour Party's been doing lately. Right. So, um, I mean, in, in December, so Liam Byrne, he, he gave a talk about Labour's digital strategy. And that, that was back in December. And, I mean, I, so I wrote a piece about, um, about it for the Socialist, pretty ruthlessly critiquing it, I would say. Because, I mean, his, what he was saying, and I feel like he's part of um, more like, New labor, like he's he's not really, I would say, on board with some of the more radical ideas right. that have come out lately. But his whole thing was just, you know, let's let's have more tech, right? Let's teach more kids to code. Let's get more people's jobs in the tech sector without really thinking about how it needs to be structurally radically transformed. So I mean, that was very disheartening. But then, since then, um, uh, a few a few weeks ago, Labor had their Alternative Models of Ownership conference where they they had a session, and I don't, I don't know if any of you were there or saw. Or heard about that? We suddenly heard about it, and we t- we talked a bit about it, but we, but t- I think Tom and I missed it. Oh, um, okay, yeah. I mean, in any case, I, so I wrote a piece about that for New Socialist as well. I guess if anyone wants to look it up, but that was just a complete about turn, and it was really really inspiring because they they were really asking fundamental questions about who owns technology, who controls it, who benefits from it, and I think that that is where we need to go. And I think it, you have to have. Um, you really do have to question uh, who owns the technology because it's not it's not enough to just simply get more people into tech or even to, I think, get more people thinking about ethics within tech because mm-hmm. the, the fundamental question is really one of ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and I think there, there's room for combining the, the ideas of, um, you know, having like a state-owned, like more state-owned uh, technology projects, but also having a more democratic structure. So a lot of the conference was talking about more bottom-up control and giving workers and people more control over over any sort of uh, you know state state-run project. So I mean, when it comes to tech, I think the the biggest thing that we have to remember is that these a lot of these corporations. So if you look at Google, Facebook, um, I mean, those in particular, right? Because they're they're advertising technology companies, and where they get their power, I mean, it really comes down to enclosure of the commons. And what they've done is they've they've taken something that really should have been a commons and they've just enclosed it in such a way that we never really question it, where it feels just natural. We can't really imagine a world where a search engine isn't, you know, this huge corporation, where social media isn't, you know, something um, that that is controlled by this one very powerful entity that is just 
make so much money and, you know, it's not paying very much in tax. I mean, it's just, we, we've become so used to the system mm-hmm. that um, what, what really needs to happen is just a complete reimagining of it. And I think what labor is trying to do, or the, the direction that they're moving in now, is trying to figure out how do we, in a sense, nationalize these companies, right? And because, I mean, it, 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 it's a really difficult question because it's not like you can go back to the, you know, the 1940s because these corporations are just so different from, say, railroads yeah. uh, or electricity companies. You know, they're they're lacking in the kind of geographic fixity that is necessary for nationalization in the, the traditional sense. But what's different is that um, the government, at least theoretically, does control the, the access points, right? So you can imagine if, um, if Labour gone to government and decided that they wanted to challenge the power of a company like Amazon, then what you could do, and it's kind of like the Chinese model where you block access and then you create your own homegrown alternative. But in Labour's case, it wouldn't necessarily be about nurturing a, um, a domestic alternative. It would be about making a sort of public public um, program. Some, yeah, I guess it's public service, right? So you can imagine something like Amazon instead being this government-run thing, but maybe without the you know, the totalitarian implications that people usually associate with it. It could be more of a democratic thing. And it just could be something where um, it's just, it's very convenient to use and it just becomes, it fades into the background, right? It doesn't necessarily need to be a commercial commercial project. And I think what we really have to do now, what labor has to do now is figure out what is the, the like, the entry point? You know, mm-hmm. where do you start? What is the easiest thing that you can make into a public service something that, you know, the government digital service could run, for example? Yeah, that's a really great question. Yeah. So, what, what, like, just to, to sort of prod you a bit on that, what, what would, what would you see as being the most sort of available um, function that you, that the government could? Because I've often thought that, like, like online payments seems like something that, you know, like the equivalent of the Royal Mail or something. You know, like a state operation for for payments would be, would be a neat thing for the state to step into because it at the moment there's so much rent seeking in 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 any kind of online payment system. But but what what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. So that that's actually the thing I think about the most. So right. um, I probably thought I probably heard that from you in the first place, right away. Yeah. Um, but so carry on, sorry. Yeah. So okay. So I guess before I, I got to London, I was um, running a startup, and it it was essentially an advertising technology startup. And I mean, I did that for three years, and by being exposed to the advertising technology world, I, I guess. Before I didn't really realize um, just how how terrible it is, how and just like how how much data is tracked and sold, right? So one of the things that um, that I learned through there, like while while working the startup, is that a, a lot of the pay, the credit card processors that you see. So you know you go to you go to a grocery store and you do a contactless payment, right? And if you look at the, the car terminal, yeah. sometimes the the, the the name of the company that you know that provides these processors, it'll be first data. So this is one of these companies. And if you just look at the name, First yeah. Data, right? they're selling your data. They're not making, like, they're making money not just from, transa- from uh, processing transactions, but from actually selling this to, you know, anyone who needs it, really. Oh, so they can build a picture and, and so, of, of what, what you've been buying and then sell your profile to, to whoever. Yeah, I mean, they, they sell whatever they can get away with, right? Yeah. This is not a it's a very opaque industry. It's not very well regulated. A lot of companies in this space, they... I mean, they're huge, and they, they just try to stay out of the public eye. I think lately we've been seeing a little more awareness of them because of um, you have things like uh, leaks happening. You you know, there was nothing, I think, with uh, Equifax, where 
a lot of their data was, was uh, hacked. But it's still like so much of it is just invisible. It's like it's like an iceberg. Um, and I mean, the big problem, right, is that you have these huge corporations that are making so much money from processing payments, and then also exposing consumers to privacy violations. And you have to really ask, like, what value are they actually providing? Why is this something that the government doesn't just take over? Because for one, I mean, that would, it would make it a lot easier to say collect taxes, and you can find a way to, um, you know, to, to to make privacy violation a lot harder to to make risks to uh, to privacy, uh, like to, to mitigate those risks. And I mean, that's something that I think would just be so easy to do because, for one, the government is already working on something like that. Um, it, Gov.uk pay, it's, it's still in beginning stages, but the technology is there. It's just right now that, you know, the, the, current, the current government is not interested in expanding its scope to anything other than uh, buying a fishing license. Like, literally, that is, one of the, that is one of the most interesting things you can do with Gov.uk pay right now. You can pay for a fishing license and you can send money to prisoners. Right. And that's pretty good. But it's like there's no reason why this shouldn't be expanded to everything. You can imagine, you know, anyone who wants to start a small business uses something like this. And then this would be a really good way of like, kind of like trying to, to shrink the size of that industry. Yeah. Which is a very exploitative and corrupt industry. And at the same time, uh, you know, making a ser- making services better. You can, you can find a way to, you know, drastically reduce transaction fees, right? Which would be make life a lot easier for a lot of small merchants. Well, that's right. I mean, one of, yeah. I mean, I I have a sideline as a an independent publisher, and a, and a huge chunk of my revenues goes really from um, from intermediaries who essentially are collecting tolls or rents from their position in a you know just a, as you say a kind of naturalized system um, that would make much more sense um, as a as a public utility. I mean, as you talk as well about the payment system, it sounds almost as though the states in a, in a state of Kind of willed in capacity, um, which has analogies with the BBC, which is basically it's a, it, it, BBC. It seems to me is a social network in in waiting, is prevented from be, becoming a social network simply by the reluctance or the refusal of the state to enter into that space. Um, now, that is, I think, a, that's a brilliant kind of um, intro into um, where we are at the moment and where we might might go next. Um, Hetty, Wendy mentioned that. A lot of what we talk about when we talk about these um, platforms are natural monopolies. Um, and as she said, you know, the, the traditional response to, to natural monopolies was, was nationalisation. You've been looking at the kind of the history and the, the practice of um, regulation and, and the management of monopolies. Um, where, do you think, where do you think things are trending at the moment in, in the way people are addressing these issues? And, and where do you think they should be going? I guess I think at the moment we're seeing a kind of fallout from the past 30, 40 years or so of viewing um, economic or measuring economic well-being in terms of the marginal returns that consumers um, get back from the economy in terms of low prices. Um, And it seems that tech monopolies present a real challenge to this paradigm because on one hand you have companies like Amazon who offer really low prices and then and, and, uh, on the other hand it's it, they, they accumulate so much power so I think um, what we're seeing now is, is the realization that our, our tools of sort of leaving the market up to itself that were very much founded in a hands-off auto-liberal model right so as long as as long as prices were falling there's there's no problem with monopoly was the sort of 
was the short yeah, end, and, right? Yeah, and in a sense, you know, consumers were, were, were very well off with companies like Amazon because we have that they come, they subsidize their products such as Prime and um, eBooks, so that um, we we can afford these things. They're arguably cheaper than they've ever been, but. I think Wendy's right in pointing out that there is this enclosure of the commons that happens because actually that metric of consumer prices and the ascendancy of that model really obscures other really, really important truths, like the fact that there are common things that we want to maintain, for example, books. Um, the e-books example, you mentioned your work as a publisher is, I think, a really interesting um example of how Amazon, whilst offering really low prices, actually threatens the things that we value as, as citizens. And so I think we've pursued this model of measuring economic health in terms of consumer prices, but we've um, actually obscured the way in which we as citizens engage with the economy. And so I think rather than measuring prices, we should be looking at power and thinking, how much power are these companies accumulating and at the expense of whom? Yes, yes. I mean, again, the, the the sort of the downward driving downward of prices in, in books is the one sector I know, know something about. They they in Amazon still get their cut. You know, Kindle publishing is very is very profitable for them, um, but it's just because it's it is squeezing small small publishers in particular, um, and creating a new kind of ecology of um, extremely vulnerable extremely precarious um, standalone independent authors um, who, you know, are in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with, with Amazon. Uh, in a, and Amazon obviously can, can snuff them out in a, in a heartbeat. Um, so as we move away from the idea that monopolies are a problem if they lead to, to sort of, you know, some simple sense that the price for a given commodity is going up, and we start to think about a, a more a more diffuse idea of value and a more, a more sophisticated sense of what we mean by by value. Um, how would you? How do you? How do you think we should be tackling the the problem posed by the likes of Google and Amazon? What I mean, what does is regulation even is regulation even possible? Well, I guess. I think there's a threat of looking at them. I know that the technologies they deploy are very novel and radically different to what we've seen in the past, but there's a threat of overemphasizing their newness and the effects that that has on the economy. And so one way in which that idea of monopoly distorting value does diffuse to affect other areas is through the power that those employers exert over wages. So it's something called a monopsony. So when you have a Monopoly employer, mm -hmm. imagine, say, a town where there's one supermarket employing the majority of employees. That company has the power to set um, their wages and also to potentially corrode things like workers' rights. And so I think latching on to the idea of workers' rights and to what this does to us as a workforce is one way of examining how the monopoly isn't just dangerous for consumer prices, it's also, perhaps more importantly, dangerous for things that we value um, as a society. And then I think with the regulation question, again, I completely, agree, I completely agree with Wendy in the sense that we shouldn't just be looking at um, letting the market naturally distribute goods in a way that's very hands-off. We need to say, well, actually, are these things not common goods? Are these things not things that we want to have in public ownership? 
because when private companies are profiting from the commons, they are depleting the commons at the expense of society's members. And I think digital space perhaps is arguably a commons because um, they are using our data and tracking our data and selling that as a resource to advertisers. I think perhaps making it public, the amount of money that individual users make for Facebook through ownership of our photos and selling our data and exposing how many millions of years of free labor us as users are putting into that platform would be one way of um, potentially lifting the veil on on the ways in which those platforms are ex uh, making money at our expense. Do you, either of you, um, have, a, have a feeling that um, the public attitudes and political opinion is kind of turning on um, on these on these issues, I, re I read a poll which I think we mentioned in a previous show that that, that found that a majority of people in the UK um, were worried about um, privacy and the use of personal data on these platforms. Do you know? Do you, do you know? I don't know either any sort of general sense of the uh, political discussions or on polling data whether there's been a big movement on these kinds of issues recently. I mean. Anecdotally, at least, I can say that in America, where I've been for the past few months, um, there is much more of a perhaps deep-seated or a, a fear that has come to the surface about monopoly power. I think in the UK, we are also sceptical um, of tech platforms, but I think our conception of political freedom historically in America has always been slightly different. And so fear of monopolies crosses both left and right. So on the right, you get Republicans fearing monopolies as much as they do a big state. And then on the left, you get politicians like Elizabeth Warren advocating for more control of monopolies. Um, in the UK, I'd really like to see more of a, maybe perhaps late mobilizing behind that message more strongly than they have been doing so. I think culturally, that's, that's an interesting point. I think in Britain, there's been both socialists and big capital have quite liked the idea of managed monopolies. Um, yes. And, uh, and there's been this, this sort of terrible tendency on the left to think in terms of sort of tidying up and managing capitalism more rationally in a way that ended up looking for, for big partners in, in the private sector to work with. Um, and also, yeah. oh, no, also, in a way that's very much about retroactively tinkering with problems that have arisen rather than proactively um, planning to avoid those problems in the first place. I think that's a tendency on the left, especially during, I guess, the past kind of 10 years or so. Um, and I, I'm, it's refreshing to see a Corbyn's government perhaps taking a different approach. Yes, there's been a sort of reflexive defensiveness, hasn't, hasn't it? It's been about protecting or defending against further kind of rightwards incursions. And I think it, Tom and I talked about this before, about the time it takes for that defensive reflex to be supplemented by a, a, a more creative sense of what might be of what might be possible. Um, uh, that brings me, that reminds me, the, the Tech Workers Coalition, um, Wendy, um, we'll obviously we'll put we'll put some more information about that in the um, in the show notes. Um, but that seems to be exactly the sort of partnership um, that the Labour left should be should be looking to forge. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, and I guess just like going back to what you were saying earlier about um, public attitudes towards tech. So 
I'm, I, I, I've mostly been just following what's going on in the tech industry, and I think that there has been quite a change in the way people within the industry or just who are interested in the industry think about tech, and I think they're definitely more and more concerned. And I think there's like a very strong political element as well, uh, specifically with Trump, because I think what happened um, around the time of Trump being elected is that a lot of people who were rank and file workers within these tech companies, they started to become a little more, I guess, like politically, um, politically conscious and a, and a little bit afraid of what was happening, right? Because I think a lot of these people, a lot of people working in these companies are quite progressive, and you know whether they supported Hillary or Bernie, they most over overwhelmingly do not support Trump. So I think a lot of them were quite shocked, and um, what made it worse was that a lot of these, um, a lot of the you know, the celebrities within tech, so people like Peter Thiel, Sheryl Sandberg, uh, I mean, they, they basically colluded with Trump in a lot of ways, it, it seemed like, right, you know, they had, um, they would go to meetings with him, and Peter Thiel, I mean, supported his campaign, and I think that was a moment when people within the industry, uh, at the lower level, started realizing that those at the top might not necessarily have the best interests of everyone at heart, and that maybe they were only really looking out for themselves, and I think that led to an increased uh, political consciousness, and that led people to join things like Tech Workers Coalition and also um, Tech Solidarity, which is a kind of a similar campaign, just to increase, I guess, um, so I think that was born out of the uh, anti-Trump backlash. Right. And there have been other similar movements, right, where a lot of a lot of tech workers who were previously maybe not that political, yeah. um, so Trump, and because of other things that have been happening around the rise of Trump, they realize that they need to start thinking about the world, that things aren't just magically going to get better, and that's gone a lot of them more politically active. So yeah, I, I think there's definitely um, there's a lot of potential in movements like that. But I think at the same time, you know, that's that's not enough in itself. There has to be this um, this change from the state as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like the, the really scary thing, I mean, going back to what uh, what Hetty's been saying about monopolies is that it's it's really it's about power. The fact that they have all this power, and it feels like we're moving towards an age where it's no longer nation states that have power; it's corporations. It's these huge multinational corporations that just like control so many parts of so many different people's lives, often without them knowing it. And I mean that that is what's really scary to me because I feel like the longer we go down this path, the uh, the more the avenues of possibility close off. And so it feels like we really need to do something about it soon. And I mean. Um, with with what labor is proposing and what the path that it sounds like they're going down, I mean that might be like what we need. It might be the only path, right? There needs to be a way of negating the power of these corporations, of essentially shrinking their size, maybe even killing them entirely. I don't I don't know, but that that's got to happen soon. It feels like because otherwise it may not be possible anymore. There there might come a time when nation states are just so weak in the face of transnational capital. Uh, and these corporations that there's just nothing that can be done. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, this this touches on some of the things that I've been looking at this week. I mean, looking at the um, the the talk about banning um, Alex Jones and Infowars from YouTube, um, and also earlier in the year, Facebook changing its its news algorithms. Um, to start in a way is that we're starting to de-emphasize uh, certain kinds of media outlets. I mean, clearly they these these organisations have massive amounts of arbitrary power, um, both kind of visible and and invisible in their ability to to make content widely available or to make it very obscure, 
without banning it outright, they can make and break publishing platforms more or less at will. Um, where I think, where I think I disagree with you slightly is I I see them as very much willing handmaidens of the state, um, and particularly the U.S. state, but also um, major allies of the U.S. like the, like the United Kingdom. I think that the the changes that they're bringing about. Um, to the way they're managing the news feeds and the way that they're managing what they what they talk about as, as sort of Russian um, subversion, I think they're doing it at the prompting of their respective states. Um, so my fear is is not so much that they will become an autonomous, independent power, but but as, acting as auxiliaries of the state, they'll restore a kind of smooth population management. And the kinds of incursions that we saw with Brexit or with Trump or with Corbyn or with Sanders, for good and bad, these kinds of interruptions to normal service will, will be edited out at the level of the algorithms. Um, that's that's my well, that's my two pence worth on that. But but I but I agree with you entirely that unless we we act decisively at the level of the state, um, these things will become, be beyond the reach of democratic control. Um, I think they risk justifying the recession of the state in many ways, actually, in terms of particularly when it comes to providing public services. One thing that I became aware of this week that isn't totally new is Uber Health in the US, which and, and talks to um, bring Uber and Lyft in as alternatives to ambulance provisions. No, it's clearly they've been, they've been trying to wrap a, a kind of shiny tech camouflage around another another level of privatization um yeah and i think the, just to add to what hetty said i mean there's definitely moves in similar sorts of moves in education as well you know with the integration of um technology from google and other companies where you know they they, they quite obviously sort of integrating themselves into service delivery in such a way in which they will you know, they, they will have such power over the logistics and the service delivery that, um, you know, they're going to be in a position where they just become, um, you know, more or less a central part of the state in a way, but, but able to kind of, but able to monetize it. And it seems that that's what a lot of these tech companies do is they have like such long-term growth and investment strategies that they're, all, they're sort of heading for um, state-like monopolies, you know, because that's that seems to be what their business models are, made on in a way and for a state which doesn't um naturally want to provide um you know public services there there does seem to be a sort of coalition of interest there i think i'm sure that's true and i'm sure that's particularly true in things like the nhs where um the big tech companies are circling um looking for ways of monetizing um both the provision and the analysis of, of data as well. We've been talking for about uh, about 35 minutes now, and, and what I'd like to do um, in the in the last section is uh, is to think sort of quite practically about both um, like policy proposals that, that we we might want to think about, but also what listeners can do practically in terms of media that they can follow um, um, and organizations they can become um, more aware of um, so that so that we start to sort of push forward with a with an agenda um, 
Wendy, let's let's start with you. Like, what would you what 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 do you think is most important for our listeners to know right now? Uh, that, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, so, are, are you asking in terms of what media they should follow? Yeah, let's start like, with that. Like, what what should people be? You know, where should people people be going for for like different sort of takes on this? I think we're all slightly vulnerable to just sort of picking up on what's in our Twitter feed or on our Facebook. <laughs> in my case, um, so where should we be going for an independent take on this kind of uh, on these kinds of issues? That's a good question. So I'm actually um, in the middle of compiling a list, basically answering your exact question. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. So I I can link to it. It's not quite ready yet. So um, I'm I'm co-editing the next issue of Notes from Below. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's it's a it's a, like a, a recent um, socialist publication that focuses on class composition. And the next issue is going to be about technology. Right. So in the middle of getting pieces for that, we're going to have. Pretty a pretty great issue, I I think, um, and it's just about about technology and uh, organizing and you know just like how what can be done within the tech industry to make things better and um, covering kind of a lot of the things that we've been talking about today. So then included with the issue will be like a list of resources of uh, things people should look into if they want to understand the problem with tech better. That's so I don't when's, that, when's that due out, Wendy? Hmm? When will that be out? Uh, in Maybe a week, hopefully. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, we'll tweet it from um, from the uh, Twitter account when it's available. If you let us know, and then listeners can find it there. Yeah. Sure. Um, and I guess uh, to answer your question, so in terms of big takeaways. Sure. Um, I mean, I'm I'm biased, but I think New Socialist is uh, has, is going to be putting out some more stuff. Not not just by me. Um, I mean, Hetty Hetty's piece on monopolies was published there. And we are looking to get more stuff on tech as well. Mm-hmm. Just you know, just like I guess addressing technology from a very clearly left wing perspective, and trying to understand what can actually be done with, uh, with say, a labor government that's willing to to tackle the the big questions of ownership. So yeah, sorry, I don't know if that helps. No, that's super helpful. I would recommend um, to all our listeners to to follow the New Socialist on Twitter and to to check out their website. Um, it has been publishing some really groundbreaking uh, policy papers, not just by Hetty, but also by Tom and I. Tom and I wrote a piece on, on New Media, which is out there at the moment. Um, so that's, that's terrific. Hetty, where should we be looking and what should we be dreaming of or planning? Um, so in terms of where we should be looking, I'm obviously biased to US sources because that's where I've been recently. Mm-hmm. But... Um, and there's a great medium list by Matt Stoller called How to Educate Yourself on Monopoly Power, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend. Um, and then also I follow the work of um, the Open Markets Institute, which is um, was founded by Barry Lynn, who was um, the guy who got kicked out of New America following his um, criticism of Google. Um, and they have a weekly newsletter that is very interesting that touches on US and EU monopoly um, issues. Um, and then, and in terms of like actions forward, um, really I would like to see a broader paradigm shift in in how we think about economic health that does encompass um, power rather than just um, consumers. Um, 
But I think if we're looking to change things from that consumer paradigm, then perhaps looking at something like discriminatory pricing um, and the way in which surge pricing um, actually seems to break the consumer prices paradigm by um, increasing consumer prices in many ways. I think that there's an argument to be made there that could be more on the kind of reformist side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but in an ideal world, I would like to see a, a conversation about economics that did um, estimate the power that these companies are accruing and criticize that and, and call it out for what it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I, I just wanted to add, I think, I don't think you can have a conversation about the technology industry that isn't looking at the economic structures that gave rise to it, right? because the, the two are so so inextricably linked. And the, the reason the tech industry is the way it is, the reason all these problems are occurring, is just, it's really just about the economic structures and at various levels. Right? So you have the whole startup mentality mindset where you, know, you, you as a founder, you have to succeed, you have to make your company as big as possible. And then that leads to people doing startups that don't really contribute any value, I mean, including, including mine. Right? And you have so much money being poured into the industry into creating these really just useless startups. And I think that's, it, it, that is a factor that you really can't separate out. Um, and then on the other side, with the, with the tech giants, I mean, if you, look, if you look at their economic incentives, of course they're going to behave the way they do, right? Like, of course they're going to violate privacy. Of course they're going to, you know, just do any, any, any of the problems we have with uh, the tech companies. They're, it's not about tech. It's really just about the economy. And I think the big problem with tech is that it's kind of an accelerated microcosm almost of mm-hmm. the lot problems with the economy. Uh, and because of that, I mean, you, really, you really can't change much without almost fundamentally rethinking the economic incentives at play. Well, that's a great note to end on. Um, and that, I think that, that gives us a huge amount to think about and it pushes us forward into the future, which is a space that's been colonised by these bastards in Silicon Valley. And um, it's time for us to claim it back. Democratic startups for the public good. You heard it here first from Wendy. Um, and I, over the next few months and years, I hope to see that, um, that programme and that agenda being, being elaborated and developed further. Um, Hetty, Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I think that's been a, 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 like a superb sort of, sort of um, next instalment on a subject that will, I'm sure, run and run. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us and uh, thanks everyone for listening. We will see you next week. Bye.